A listener note before we begin. We're launching a three-week Ask an Expert podcast series about all things free speech, online censorship and deplatforming, campus speech and cancel culture, and education and book bans. So here's where you come in. We want to answer your questions. What does the law say about social media companies deplatforming users? Does our constitution support cancel culture? If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or email us at podcast at aclu.org. Okay, now on to the show. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast and your host for this episode. April marks Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And with that, we are bringing you a conversation today about Title IX, one of the protections against sexual assault within our education system and in our workplaces. In May of 2020, Then-Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos gutted Title IX protections for schools, particularly as they pertained to sexual assault adjudication, giving schools the leeway to evade accountability procedures and disempower victims. This action was fueled by conservative backlash and men's rights groups who consistently claim that there is a lack of due process when it comes to allegations of sexual assault. But is that really true? Or do we have a public misconception of due process? What does it mean for universities and employers to employ systems that are both fair and restorative? Alexandra Brodsky, staff attorney at Public Justice, asks these questions and offers up meaningful answers in her new book, Sexual Justice, Supporting Victims, Ensuring Due Process, and Resisting the Conservative Backlash. Alexandra believes that there is a system available to us all that empowers survivors and values due process, a process outside of the criminal legal system that can provide both accountability and reduce harm. She joins us today to break down it all. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your new book. Thank you and thanks so much for having me. So your book, Sexual Justice, is largely a culmination of what seems to be your life's work, both as a lawyer and advocate, and also the change that you wanted to see based on your own lived experience in reporting sexual harassment. I want to get into the details of the book, but first I want to start a little bit with your background, because it's very interesting. First, I read that you never spoke very much about your personal stake in this fight while in college, but you and a group of students at Yale did notably file an administrative complaint with the Department of Education against your school under Title IX in 2011. So how was Yale mishandling claims of sexual harassment at the time, and what was the outcome of your filed complaint with the Department of Education? It's interesting for me to reflect back on that time because we're now over a decade since we filed that complaint and things look a lot different now. And that's not to say that all, obviously, that all school sexual harassment problems have been solved, but we were really starting with the 101 basics back in 2011. Mm. And so 
uh, the complaint that we filed detailed how Yale was responding to what I can only call these mass public events of sexual harassment, where, for example, um, a fraternity as part of their hazing ritual marched around where the freshman dorms are shouting, no means yes, yes means anal. And there was some kind of event like that every single year. And the school would say, like, mm-hmm, we don't really love that. No, thank you. But wouldn't do anything to make sure that it it, it didn't happen again. And so we, we talked about those public events, but we also talked about how those same um, values or, you know, lack of commitment was being reflected in the school's responses when students came forward to talk about less public forms of sexual abuse so that they had been assaulted, they had been stalked, uh, and the way that the school would really try to brush it aside. And uh, so we made a complaint to the Department of Education, which investigated and required the school to... Uh, implement a a range of policy changes to make it clearer for students how they could come forward to provide more meaningful remedies to students so that they could continue to learn in the wake of violence and to be more transparent with the community so that as the school hopefully did better, it would be able to earn the trust of people on campus to know, hey, if I come forward to the school, some good might come of it. So my understanding is that Yale didn't actually have a Title IX coordinator back in 2011. Is that right? Yeah. And again, this is when I say we were working at a really 101 level. You know, again, there are still challenges today, but I feel like, especially at colleges and universities, schools have Title IX coordinators. You know, they they have the basics down and it's about refining policy. Um, And we were really not there. I should say that K-12 schools continue to sort of be the Wild West. So I I should say I'm not speaking for my employer in this conversation today, but in my legal practice, uh, a lot of, I I spend a lot of my time representing student survivors in Title IX lawsuits. And the vast majority of those are K-12 students, where not only are students not getting the kind of basic support that they need, you know, counseling, extra tutoring for time they miss, but they are facing punishment from their schools when they come forward. Um, They are the ones who end up suspended for, you know, quote unquote, sexual contact when they report that they were raped on school grounds. Being the ACLU, we obviously believe that litigation can create social change. I mean, there are obviously other very important avenues, but you speaking to a legal organization, that is our bread and butter. So in 2013, when you were in law school... Back at Yale, you co-founded Know Your Nine, a student group that quickly developed into this national campaign that fights to prohibit sex discrimination in education. I should mention that the ACLU has partnered with Know Your Nine on several occasions, but could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of Know Your Nine? Sure. So after uh, my friends and I had filed that complaint, against Yale as undergrads. And we started to hear from students at other schools who are, you know, facing similar issues. And we were able to connect some of the dots, you know, not just in the problems with school responses, but in what had been effective for activists and what our roadblocks were. And one of them was that people would learn about their rights under Title IX to an education free from sexual violence a little bit too late. And so uh, my friend Dana at Amherst College, um, who's actually also now a sex discrimination lawyer, and some other students from different schools worked together over the summer before I started law school to put together a really basic legal explainer for students about what their rights were under Title IX. 
And we did not think that this was going to be some big organization. We thought we were going to make a couple infographics and go on our merry way. But there ended up being a really powerful student response. And we ended up also seeing the need for students to not only know about their rights, but to also be able to speak directly to policymakers who were maybe going to change those rights for, for better or for worse. And so Know Your Nine, as this broader organization was born, and continues to do legal education rights and policy advocacy with young people. It continues to be youth-led, which means that it cannot be me-led. Uh, but we are now on to, I think, our, our fourth or fifth executive director. Um, and it's just really exciting to see sort of new generations of student activists making Know Your Nine their own. I imagine it feels amazing to see something that you created live so far beyond you and to continue to, like, have these huge ripple effects across the country. I mean, it probably is even a bigger deal now than it was when you'd first kind of envisioned it. Why is it that schools and other institutions have often abdicated their responsibilities in addressing claims of sexual harassment? If there are school policies and procedures when it comes to hazing incidents or physical violence, why is it different when sexual harassment gets involved? You know, I think that that is in, in so many ways the question. Why is it that schools that are used to dealing with all kinds of misconduct, including pretty serious misconduct, suddenly balk when um, the harms are sexual in nature? And, you know, I think that there are, are a bunch of kind of, you know, overlapping reasons. I think that one is sexism. I think that, one, you know, one is that there are centuries, millennia of myths that, you know, one, all survivors or all people who claim to be survivors of sexual violence are women and that all of those women are lying because they, you know, want to get back at, you know, a guy who didn't call them. I think that also people really have it stuck in their heads that sexual assault is only a crime, that the only correct way to respond to an allegation of sexual assault is call the police, have a judge and jury, uh, you know, and at the end of all of that, maybe the person, you know, the person accused goes to prison when, in fact, sexual assault, yeah, it's a crime, but it's also a civil rights violation. And it's also a threat to the survivor's ability to learn, to work, to participate in public life. And that's when school responses come in. I did pick up on that distinction in your book, the idea between looking at sexual harassment as only something that can be dealt with through criminal law versus a civil suit or just a civil rights violation, as you as you just said. And I think certainly at the ACLU, you know, it's we're not trying to put more people through the criminal legal system. We don't necessarily believe it works, right? Why was that focus on the civil rights perspective so important to you? Was it because that that's kind of the framework that you you come from? Or was this an attempt to kind of reimagine a new system for dealing with this? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think that I really wanted to help people who view these harms as just crimes that should only be handled by the police see the issue in a new way. Because ultimately, the focus of the book is on these really tricky conversations that we've been having nationally about what due process means in the context of sexual harassment allegations. And there are so many people who, because their mind goes, okay, I hear about a sexual assault. I assume that the police are the right way to handle that. But when we realize this is a harm that violates many different laws, that has 
uh, stakes for the survivor that aren't really uh, legible in a criminal prosecution, then we understand that you're not going to need the same process to address an allegation of sexual harm in every single context. Sure, if someone, if a, if a victim reports to the police and is seeking uh, prosecution, then there's going to be one set of very stringent rules that have to be, have to be followed. But if we're talking about an employer investigating sexual harassment to figure out whether the harasser is going to have, you know, their shift change to get away from the victim, if we're talking about a school investigating an allegation, we're necessarily going to have different kinds of, that that investigation is going to look different. It's going to be a different kind of of process with different stakes at the end. You know, I, I knew when I was writing the book that if I couldn't get people on board with just that basic idea that process looks different in different circumstances with different stakes, that nothing I said after that was going to make any sense. It seems to me that you use Title IX as kind of, you know, just the underpinnings of the book, right? I've heard you say that Title IX isn't a replication of criminal law on, on school campuses. What does Title IX actually entail? So Title IX is a civil rights statute that prohibits sex discrimination in education. And in the book, I talk about it alongside Title VII, which is an employment discrimination statute that prohibits, among other things, sex discrimination in employment. And that's a really broad mandate, right? You can't discriminate on the basis of sex in school or in the workplace. And A thing that's really important to me in thinking about the, you know, the purposes of workplace and school responses to sexual harm is the purpose of those laws. Those are not laws about punishing people who do bad things. There's time and place for that, sure, but that's not what these systems are about. What they're about is making sure that individuals can participate equally in, you know, in the workplace, in school, both so that those individuals are treated justly, and to promote systemic equality. I think it really makes sense when you break it down and you say, it is hard for someone to stay in a job when they are being sexually harassed every day by their boss. It is hard for someone to study in a library they have to share with their rapist. And so if the institution is able to provide a remedy, then make sure that they can continue to work, continue to learn. In safety, that's going to help that person stay in the workplace, stay in school, and it's going to ensure that people like them uh, are able to, you know, overwhelmingly women, people of color are going to be able to be, you know, true equals in these really important places of public life. I think that sometimes it's frustrating to me to hear the ways in which those procedures are talked about as just replications of the criminal law Mm -hmm. when they really just have a different purpose. Right. I think my perception was that if you're reporting within an institution, it's going to be treated like a crime. And I think for a lot of survivors, that's also a very um, big deterrent in reporting because survivors don't always want to report uh, the uh, it as as if it was a crime. Like the reality is that a lot of people aren't reporting because they don't want someone to go to jail or prison. So I think it's like really interesting because it could also open up the opportunity for more survivors to feel comfortable asking for simple things, simple accommodations that you're you're saying like a shift change or counseling resources. So a lot of this book is dedicated to actually offering up 
uh, at least principles and values that that can guide uh, institutions in handling these scenarios. What are these fundamentals? So in the book, I give this really bare bones outline. So, you know, here's the, the 101 is you have to make sure that people can report and that the person who's accused knows what they've been accused of. You have to give everyone a chance to tell their side of the story and provide their evidence. They have the, you know, should be able to be heard by impartial decision makers, given assistance through that process, and uh, where possible, have the chance to appeal a decision that they that they think is unfair. But I'm, I'm clear in the book that that's really bare bones and how institutions implement those basic rules is going to look different in different circumstances. You know, a Fortune 500 company is going to put those rules to work in a different way than a five-person employer. Uh, that's going to look different than a kindergarten investigation and a grad school investigation. You know, it, it's all going to depend on the context, the resources available, the ages of the people. The one thing that I say it shouldn't really change, depending on, is the nature of the allegation itself. We should be using the same investigation procedures for all harms that have similar stakes, but we shouldn't be singling out sexual harassment alone uh, for special procedures because historically what that, you know, what that ends up meaning is imposing particularly onerous requirements on survivors of sexual harassment compared to everyone else hurt in other, uh, you know, analogously serious ways. I wonder if you could lay out any kind of ideas or actions based on your experience, both as an advocate, as a litigator, in a school setting in particular, that people could take to protect a victim's right to education and, and participate in their community. I actually think that the most important thing for student survivors is access to what we call accommodations or support services. So that means having at their disposal when they report a chance to get counseling, to get academic accommodations. You know, let's say that someone's missed two weeks of school because they didn't want to be, you know, running to the person who sexually assaulted them in the hallways. Um, they might need a tutor to help them learn how to do long division. I, I think that schools can often put in place what are called safety plans. So, you know, a way to make sure that a student doesn't have to fear seeing the person who hurt them in the cafeteria to make sure that as they move forward in their educations, they're never going to be scheduled into the same class or the same study hall. Those are really basic things that don't even require an investigation because they don't infringe on the rights of the person who's been accused. Now, there are times when in order for a survivor to continue to learn, there are going to have to be some kinds of restrictions on the person who's hurt them. And that's when you need the investigation. But I talk in the book about the importance of a certain kind of symmetry in the process, that both students should have the same rights. They should be equally valued throughout the investigation. The school should use an evidentiary standard that is an, an equalizing one that puts equal weight on the stakes for both students. And I think that we see some schools starting to do that right. You do talk a bit about the accused in this conversation. What were those conversations like when you engaged with people who, who were accused? And did you learn anything that surprised you? Yeah, you know, that was a hard, but I think really necessary part of writing this book. I didn't really know people, or I should say, I didn't know that I knew people who had been accused of sexual harassment. And I 
I wanted to talk to them not to figure out, you know, quote unquote, what really happened. I wasn't trying to catch people. I just wanted to understand what it had been like for them to be subject to an investigation and what had felt fair or unfair to them. And, you know, I think I learned some really helpful things, including the ways in which really small policy tweaks can be humanizing. So I talked to actually, you know, a a lawyer who told me that for his clients, just getting an email signed by a real human rather than from, you know, the student conduct code office could make them feel like they were a human talking to another human and not just this speck of dust caught in a machine. And, you know, I heard about how people really responded to the demeanor of decision makers, that they could feel when people treated them with skepticism, and that that made them feel like it didn't matter what they had to say, that the, you know, result was predetermined. And I will tell you, I hear of that from survivors all the time. You know, I, I see, you know, in my clients' cases, video of how they're being interrogated. And I'm like, they never stood a chance. I will say that, you know, a balancing act for me here was being open to hearing these stories and uh, connecting with people and also really not wanting to be duped into portraying someone who really had committed a sexual harm as some kind of terrible victim of due process. And I had a couple of instances where people told me things which turned out to not be so true. And just personally, that, you know, trying to be both open and not inappropriately credulous uh, was a a tricky line to walk. It's been about three years since the Me Too movement brought about all of these stories and then sometimes repercussions in certain industries. I wonder, you know, looking back now that we are about three years later, do you think much has changed? I I do, and I think it can both be true that a lot has changed and also that we have much further to go. So, you know, I think that uh, we've seen really a remarkable shift over the last decade in survivors feeling able to, to come forward when they've been harassed. So I, I will tell you that when I was in undergrad, it never occurred to me that someone might publicly self-identify as a survivor. That just seemed like... Absolutely wild, absolutely impossible. And it was only after I had graduated um, and this woman, Angie Epifano, um, who was a student at the time at Amherst, published an op-ed in her student paper about her experience. And that was absolutely groundbreaking. I think that now, again, if you asked a college student today, they'd be like, oh yeah, I know a whole bunch of people who are public about being survivors at my school, but totally unthinkable at the time. And I think similarly, we're seeing with Me Too, which you know, of course, moved beyond campuses into primarily the workplace, but also thinking sort of more broadly about uh, abuse in our communities, that people just see that that's an option. And it doesn't mean that every survivor has to speak publicly, but I do want people to feel like if they want to do that, that they can do that. I do also think that it has spurred a tremendous backlash and, um, we, I, I think, are in the midst of pushing pushing out of that initial wave of backlash. Yeah, I think so, too. I really do. I think the ways in which it's opened up the conversation for people who perhaps have carried shame about their experiences for a very long time or didn't necessarily understand how to classify it. I think the institution piece is really where I, I wonder if there's a ton of change, but... 
you know, maybe it's the cultural change that has to happen first. And, you know, I think that's often with a lot of issues. It's the culture precedes the law <laughs> or the culture precedes the systems. I want to talk about a change that did actually happen. So when you were still a student in law school, you wrote a paper about stealthing, which is the act of removing a condom during sex without a partner's consent, which before now, in most instances, had no legal repercussion. You submitted the paper that you wrote to a prominent law journal, and it got a bunch of immediate attention at the time. And now there's a new bill that was recently approved by the California legislature that makes stealthing a civil offense. And countries around the world seem to also be taking up the matter. Tell us more about this. And are you surprised by kind of the wave of action on this issue? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is so weird to me. I mean, I I wish I had a, uh, you know, pretend that any of this was purposeful. But, you know, I wrote this paper in law school and my professors told me, you know, if you have any term papers, you should probably try to get them published. Why not publish this paper? And it kind of went around the internet and landed in some legislators' inboxes. And, you know, the only, I don't think that it has gotten attention because it is world's most brilliant piece of legal scholarship. I think that the reason it has is that it named a thing that was happening to people for whom there was, you know, we were just talking about shame, a tremendous amount of shame because for me, non-consensual condom removal is, I mean, very bad. And also, interesting to focus on because it sits at the intersection of so many rape myths. You know, people have the easiest time being believed when they are assaulted by, you know, a stranger. And it's the first time that they've ever, you know, been in contact with a man in their entire life. And they were a perfect angel at every point before then. And non-consensual condom removal definitionally happens when someone has consented to sex with that person but just didn't consent to it without a condom. And so I think a lot of people have faced a lot of myths and stereotypes when they've tried to come forward. And so storytelling, which you do not need a law-reviewed article to do, can do a lot of work in helping give people uh, language to describe what's happened to them and let them know that they're not the only one. Do you imagine that other states will follow California's direction here? I hope so. I know that there has have been legislative efforts in Wisconsin and New York. Um, they have not succeeded to date, but uh, I know that legislative change takes time. Uh, I'd also love to see some federal action. So I don't know. I'm I'm excited. Fingers crossed. Speaking of federal action, we talked about earlier about the Secretary of Education under Trump, Betsy DeVos, implementing new provisions under Title IX that limited a school's responsibility to address sexual harassment. Why was this so damning? Boy, um, so we've been talking a lot about backlash. So in response to some really serious progress that had been made, particularly on the higher ed level during the Obama years, the Trump administration promulgated new Title IX rules. And I'll sort of describe them in two parts. So one that's been, I think, really overlooked in a lot of the public reporting is that the rules changed when schools have to do anything about sexual harassment at all. They narrowed the definition of sexual harassment. They placed arbitrary geographic boundaries on schools' responsibilities and lowered the bar for what schools are required to do. 
They then also, mostly on the higher ed level, imposed some uniquely onerous procedural requirements such that students accused and professors accused of sexual harassment as defined by the regulation now have far, far greater procedural rights than students or professors accused of any other kind of misconduct. Um, And, you know, conversely, students who experience sexual harassment face a far more intimidating and re-traumatizing process than classmates who have experienced other kinds of analogous harms. Um, And so, I know the ACLU has sued. My organization currently represents a high school club um, in a lawsuit challenging the pieces that are impacting K-12 students the most. Uh, And we are um, hoping that the Biden administration takes up these regs um, and we see some real change soon. To that end, they have vowed to overturn Bessie DeVos's regulations, the Biden administration, by the end of May of 2022. Do you believe that we're still on track for that? Oh, um, you know, I I certainly hope I would love to see changes a lot sooner. Um, And I think that there are also open questions about substantively what those changes are going to be. You know, we can't have an entire generation of students, you know, go through high school, go through college with these awful regulations in place. So I know that one of your goals potentially in writing the book was to respond to this conservative backlash. How did you seek to address this in the book? I think what really drove me to write this book was to address this backlash where we see that bad actors, particularly, but not only on the right, who see progress on sexual harassment, respond with this kind of rallying cry of what about due process, that when you scratch below the surface is really just, we don't like it when men get in trouble for sexual harms. And my, you know, my... Hope is to both give advocates, you know, the tools and the language and the framework that they need to address good faith critiques of unfair procedure, to recognize when someone is raising good points that a procedure isn't fair, to help them talk about how that, you know, due process relates to justice for survivors, and also to call out the bad faith backlash when they see it. So I want to end our conversation with just, I guess, going back to your own personal experience. Obviously, you can't necessarily separate your personal experience from now your experience as, as a litigator. But what advice would you offer a student who is currently has you know experienced sexual harassment and is in this in this process and is doesn't know how to proceed or what to do? That is a good question. And my lawyerly answer is, well, I would have to know all the circumstances and know about the school policy, you know, blah, 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 blah. But as you know- From your personal perspective, right? Yeah. Like as a- You know, I guess what I would say as a general matter is I think that the hardest and most important question for a survivor, whether that's at school or at work or in any other context is- What will make you feel safe and as okay as possible now? Taking a moment to figure out what is it that you want right now, knowing that there's no one-size-fits-all remedy, will be able to help you figure out um, what's the right office to be in touch with. You know, if you ultimately, if the most important thing for you is just some accommodations and the idea of going through an investigation just seems absolutely awful right now, you might make the choice not to go through that investigation, or you might 
say, can I, you know, how long do I have to make up my mind? Can I, you know, press pause for now and a year later come back to you? Uh, and I think, you know, I, I just think a lot of people assume that there is one path toward safety and justice, and that's going to just look really different for different people. And having faith that you're an expert in your own experience and your own life uh, will set you up for a best possible outcome out of what are undoubtedly, you know, none of them are ideal outcomes. Right. Well, Alexandra, thank you so, so much for joining us. It was a gift to hear more about your work and your passion and your lived experience. And uh, we really appreciate what you've what you've put out for the rest of us to consume. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you to the ACLU for all your work on this, this issue. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.